very difficult for Manchester United to stop that. What do you want them to do? Come out and deny every single link. With 22 links to different players on one day last week alone. Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app. Now we're going to turn our attention to the Sunday papers, so I'll run you through the back pages first of all. And where are we here? A Sun Sport yesterday and uh, the dubs there in the top corner. Dubs pair in semi-scare. Desi's aces uh, busted, so he's revealed that Conor Gallen and James McCarthy in a race against time to be fit for the All-Ireland semi-final on July 10th. Uh, he refused Farrell to reveal the seriousness of the issues, but admits they're crunch uh, last four clash, says Jason Byrne here against Kerry Armeo, might come too soon for the pair. Uh, beneath that, you'll see a picture of Wayne Rooney looking like he's at school. So, class Rooney. Uh, Waza needs badges for top job. Obviously, you might have seen Wayne Rooney uh, left Derby on Friday, which surprised everybody at the club, but uh, he's going to spend his time now completing his pro licence. That is the plan for Wayne Rooney in the short term. We have the Sunday Times... And it's a shot yesterday of uh, Cork's Paul Ring trying to block Sean Bugler at Crow Park. Semi-detached, Dublin too strong for Cork, while Derry brush aside Clare to reach All-Ireland Senior Football Championship last four. Beneath that, Jonathan Northcroft has Ten Hag uh, digging in to land 70 million to Young. This is Manchester United very much at the insistence of their new manager pushing the boat out to get to Young. Barcelona want... 80 million uh, euro or so or 85 million United are going with 80 million which uh, it seems will get the job done so it seems 80 million euro is good enough for Barcelona so that's the priority for Manchester United at the moment and then David Walsh here in the front page Ryder Cup exclusion for Saudi Gulf Rebels so it does seem as if if, uh, the DP World Tour are not too far away from banning the Live Golf DB World players from Ryder Cup action they uh, banned them initially for a tournament or two and there was a £100,000 fine but it seems that as the uh, Live Golf events continue and the European participation continues in those events the uh, char- the uh, moves against them will um, uh, grow and, and culminate in Ryder Cup ban maybe Mail on Sunday Deja Blue ominously familiar feeling for Dublin's rivals as Farrell's men crank it up in Croker they really were in third gear to be honest Dublin against uh, Cork as we've mentioned already 21 points to 10 we have the front page of the Sunday Independent. Again, Kicking Kings, Rocks, Freeze, see Dublin into semis. Clare crushed by Classy Derry. That's Dermot Crow on the front page of the Sunday Independent. Sunday World. Again, it's Rock Stars, Dean and Dubs Cruise to victory against Rebels in Croker. 21 points to 10, the final score there. And on the front page of the Sunday Independent main section, we have Mark Ty, formerly of the Sunday Times, now with the Sunday Independent. And this is John Delaney once again on the front page of uh, main section revealed the emails Delaney's attempting to conceal which we might start with in just a moment very happy to say Kleena Foley journalist and <coughs> broadcaster here in studio you're very welcome you and Tommy Martin of Virgin Media Television and the Irish Examiner with us as well Tommy great to have you in thanks so Good in shorts as well the summer feeling <laughs> yeah, why not summer sh- shorts and rain gear I think I you, uh, you don't know what I'm wearing under this desk though of course <laughs> uh, so fashion. John Delaney on the front page of the main section revealed the emails Delaney is attempting to conceal and this is Mark Ty here. We are now in the midst of a two and a half year legal battle between the office of the director of corporate enforcement and John Delaney. And really what's happening at the moment is legal argument over emails and whether or not these should be 
taken into evidence. So 270,000 emails have been seized. Can you imagine the workload here to go through 270,000 emails? So it seems there is contention over 1,123 of those emails and a small number as well of hard documents over which John Delaney has maintained a claim of legal privilege. So, in effect, the documents John Delaney is seeking to shield include hundreds of emails with former FAI executives Ray Walsh and Carl Heffernan. And uh, court filings show Mr Delaney is claiming he was advised in some of these emails on family law matters, on the purchase of a €1 million Euro house in Ockram, County Wicklow. And his argument is that many of the mails are linked, for instance, to his divorce case, which could return to court. So, this upholds his litigation privilege claims that these emails and I'm no lawyer but these emails could be used again in court down the line therefore they remain privileged and they should not be part of the ODCE investigation and in effect the judge has to decide whether uh, John Delaney is correct in this matter or the OCDE do have access to these 1,123 emails that seems to be it in essence yeah yeah, well, it was as as journalists. I think what struck us about it was because he, he he lists um, seventy eight of the legal cases, but and true to sports journalists, I think we all had a different number. I, I reckon it was forty one. Somebody else said thirty eight. But of the seventy eight cases, they're nearly all cases involving media. And I know um, people used to always argue or say, you know, why did a lot of this stuff not come out before? But this probably does reflect the level of. Um, cases and and legal threats that were going on all the time for quite an extended period. So it'd be fascinating if they do come out eventually. Um, the one thing that interested me in this, and obviously Mark Ty is a big is a big signing for the Sunday Indo. <laughs> he's like a premiership signing for him, isn't he? Really, given all the work that he's done on this. Um, but I, what interests me is that he says that Delaney now runs a consultancy business, Delay Limited, in London, um, and is also trying to shield a number of emails with Finance One, a financial advisory firm that advised on, quote, refinance of personal business, a property purchase, and a company called Spinel Crest. So it's that sort of, you know, granular detail that Mark High um, did so brilliantly and made that book so such you know, forensic uh, investigation, such a brilliant, but brilliant read at the same time. But this is very much mired in, in legal legalese. Yeah. And I'd and say a lot to come. And who knows how significant these 1,123 yeah, yeah. emails are. So John Delaney is claiming, for instance, that in some of these disputes, there is contention between the FAI and John Delaney as to who's responsible for the fees, for instance. So even though some of these cases may be uh, settled, his claim is they are still potentially alive and therefore a litigation privilege exists. But you do read through a lot of the 78 cases he's listed and it's John Delaney versus Goal.com 2016-17, John Delaney versus The Journal 2016, John Delaney versus The Examiner mm-hmm. 2016, versus Independent Newspapers 2016, versus The Daily Mail 2016, Sports Joe 2016, The Limerick Post, uh, Prime Time in 2013, Newspapers, uh, Independent Newspapers 2013, Daily Mail and Irish Times 2014, Irish Times 2011, Morning Ireland of RTE. Uh, John Delaney, Independent Newspapers again, 15. The Journal, 16. You Boys in Green in 2014. The Waterford Local uh, Radio Station, 2016. The Sun, 
Balls.ie, more Sunday independent investigations. Evening Herald 2012, Sunday Times 13, Sunday Times 16, John Delaney versus Independent Newspapers 2016, The Irish Daily Star 11, Sports News Ireland 2011, Irish Daily Star 14, Irish Daily Mail 2014. I could keep going. Mm. I'm, I'm labouring the point slightly, but it is an extraordinary uh, litany. If they say that uh, legal actions are the, the, uh, the Oscars of our Oscars. trade uh, in the media, this is like the, the glitziest uh, award ceremony you're, you're ever likely to see because the, the, the amount of uh, media organisations that are, that are listed there. Um, so I suppose the, the, you know, the couple of things that stand out, obviously he's, um, this is all in the hands of Justice Leone Reynolds who will uh, make the decision as to whether to come down in favour of John Delaney that these emails should be um, not included in the ODCE's uh, uh, investigation because of their links to ongoing legal cases and, and family law um, situations that, that may become uh, active again. Um, the other thing is, is that a lot of them... Um, our correspondence involving uh, FAI staff members, mm. um, uh, Rhea Walsh, who became the interim CEO, um, and Carl Heffernan, who was a, com- a commercial director. And it kind of underlines, um, whether rightly or wrongly, whether the entanglement of FAI personnel uh, in Delaney's own uh, business and, and legal affairs, whatever the nature of the correspondence uh, uh, was, and, and, and all that will become apparent uh, if the emails are released. But just how the overall uh, point about this and the fact that you know Mark Tighe opened and Paul Rowan opened their book with the famous birthday party was that the FAI and John Delaney, you know, in, in Delaney's eyes, had come to be seen, and certainly with the people around him, mm. come to be seen as one and the same. So hence why I guess this is proving so hard to uh, disentangle for the, the ODCE and, and the courts. Yeah, not much more we can say about the situation, but certainly a two and a half year legal tussle and counting is very much the case in that investigation. A lot of golf in the Sunday papers this morning, some very positive and some very <coughs> much about the live golf situation and how toxic that uh, uh, war really is becoming in many ways if you're a, a golf fan and you're looking for something which is enjoyable and feel good then I suppose the win of Matt Fitzpatrick at the US Open last week and uh, Billy Foster is caddy as well is very much to the fore on that front David Walsh chats with Billy Foster who's been a caddy for a very very long time 40 odd years and uh, famously never uh, won a major and uh, some nice anecdotes from Foster down the years yeah, there's there's some. I mean, I think we've said before in here, you know, you you really would love to see a really good book by a caddy. I've always said that's it's one of those books that's really missing something that's really really honest. Um, but it, there's a great line in this. Um, obviously, it, the, the headline is he treats me, Matt treats me very well as a human being, not just just as a caddy. Um, but it also encompasses obviously the time that he spent with. Um, various other high profile golfers and I just loved um, and Dermot Elise covers that as well in the in the uh, uh, Sunday Indo mm-hmm. with Garcia and Darren Clark and Ballesteros but there's a great, <laughs> it's a great line from Foster um, he said they were all different different levels of psychopaths you're working for <laughs> <laughs> so you have to adapt because what you say to Sergio Garcia Darren Clark will hate what you say to Darren Lee Westwood won't like so you have to suss it out very quickly and it is a, an intriguing I mean he, he talks here about making the decision about the three wood um, on the 18th last week and it going wrong, hits the bunker. And, you know, the insight that he gives is brilliant. He's, he's walking down as they leave the tee. He's walking down thinking, why did you open your mouth? Why did you make him, you know, play that? You could have just cost him the US Open mm. and Foster 
turned around and said, Billy, that was the right decision. Or Fitzpatrick said it to him. Yeah, Fitzpatrick yeah, yeah. Said it, was, it, was, it was a three wood. That was now a let's classy touch. That is like yeah. <laughs> in the moment, in that moment, you know, that is an incredible thing. And, and he, that's why you can see that. Um, and, and Dave Walsh has another piece as well, actually, on Fitzpatrick as well. They're just saying he's, he's quite an unusual kind of guy. He's very, very straight up, very kind of honest, very decent with people. If you, if you didn't like Matt Fitzpatrick after the, yeah. the scenes afterwards, you, you'll, yeah. you'll love him even more now as, as a person. You know, it's great. It's a great piece, you know, as you say, as Kleena says, with the uh, examples from working with Seve and, you know, 1995 Masters where, you know, he called a club wrong and himself and Ballesteros just went absolutely nuclear with each other and the difficult personalities that he's worked with uh, in the past. And then that story about last Sunday night, but he says, the one thing I will take from Fitz is the massive mutual respect we have for each other. He's a very polite young man who looks at me and goes, well, Billy's been there and done it and he shows me a huge amount of respect and I show him the respect he deserves. He treats me very well as a human being, not just as a caddy, you know, which seems like, wow, he treats you as a human being. That's, is that, is that a, you know, an amazing rarity in, in <laughs> golfer caddy relationships, but like it's, you know, I mean, maybe it's a small thing to, 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 uh, to note as a positive from yeah, the Patrick's point of view. And in terms of Galicia's piece, like he, he, he does a nice piece as well, but he says, and he makes a very good point and he says, you know, the, cha- the 40 years of Open Championship, he said it has to be tempered with an awareness of an outstanding career in which 10% of serious winnings have amounted to very satisfactory earnings. You know what I mean? So they're, you know, at that level, they're well paid. Mm. But the pressure is, is massive. And if you've had the big instance yeah. that he's had, then clearly, uh, when it turned right, and just the scenes on the, on the, and and Zalatoris obviously responded very yeah. well, and Zalatoris's family responded very well. Everything was just, it, it just, just worked you know, out it was nice. one of those moments. That sometimes with golf, you kind of go, oh, it's all a bit, you know, overly sort of oily and uh, yeah. and and uh, you know, but the, but it was just really nice the way it was yeah. done. You know, and obviously the, the Sky Sports thing. You know, they were conscious of being a British broadcaster. We, we most of us would have been watching it on Sky. That yeah. they kind of did focus a lot on the Billy Foster. I think maybe because they got Foster Greenside right away. To, yeah, yeah. Whereas they were probably <laughs> to third or fourth in line to get uh, Matt Fitzpatrick. But it was you know they obviously all the guest people working on that coverage have been around the game a long time to know like that. This is great for great for Billy yeah. you know, as well. Like on that point in eighteen, I was fascinated by that because it gives you an example of just how difficult it can be a dynamic. So all week Fitzpatrick saw the eighteenth as driver and Foster definitely thought it was three yeah. would you run out of fairway and but it's it seems the agreement they reached was Foster said, Okay, if you want to hit driver, you hit it and we don't want any doubt in your mind when you're hitting the shot, which makes sense. But yeah, then they talked about it before. David Walsh says Fitzpatrick hit driver, he played the hole in two over par across the first three days. So then they get to eighteen and that's where Foster says, What do I do here? And he says I stepped up and said, it is a three wood. It's going to be a nine iron in. Just get it in the fairway, three wood, and then it's a nine iron. And Fitzpatrick says, OK, yeah, three wood. And then hooks it into the bunker, which is more likely to happen with a three wood than with a yeah, driver. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can imagine Foster thinking, oh, my God, what have I done here? Like, what? A, that's why it was such a classy thing for Fitzpatrick to turn around and say to him, mm. yeah. it's OK, it was a three wood. That was my fault to put it in the bunker. Well, walking up, walking up to the next shot. You're entitled to, to be angry at that point. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, and, and obviously this, this, the, the Seve example from the from the Masters yeah, in '95. It's Seve's turn round, and, and Seve's made a mess of the shot, the next shot uh, as well. Yeah. And he's turned around and going like, "That's all your fault because he, that's what yeah. he needed to, to do to to get." <laughs> and it, it kind of uh, like this is such a great piece because it sort of uh, it's a great uh, case study of the caddy golfer relationship because it's kind of like if you think of golfers and uh, an individual sports person but the caddy is almost like because he's a part of the golfer's brain 
essentially there. Like you see Jordan Spieth and his caddy in that yeah. sort of relationship. That's kind of a great example of that's like an internal monologue. They never stop. They yeah, never like stop. an internal it's conversation that, that you going. might have. Yeah. If you know the other individual sports people have with their own yeah. conflicting views and their own sort of arguments. Will I take a three wheeler? Will I take a driver? But now you've got these two human beings who are essentially the one sort of unit. Yeah. And yet, if something goes wrong, then there's a fracture there yes. and. And well, he's ta- and caddies are tacticians, psychologists, mm. coach. They're a bit of Punch everything. Bags. Punch bags. Punch well, bags very often on the big occasions. Well, the, yeah. exactly. the postscript to the big argument with Seve is that it seems you know, they've been working together five years at that stage and yeah. Foster on the AT&T when Seve is still going on about it, you messed up, but that's all your fault. <laughs> that's great. And so he says, I effing heard you, all right? <laughs> yeah. And then Could you David, imagine? David Walsh says, Ballesteros is shocked. Playing partner Ray Floyd and caddy Steve Williams stand silently to the side, uneasy witnesses to an ugly family row. Four days later, Foster received the letter saying his services would no longer be required by Ballesteros. Yeah. Five years together, done. I wonder, does it, does it get to a certain point? It always reminds me of uh, rally drivers. You know, I can't remember, it was a, there was an Irish uh, rally driver um, who had a bad... Uh, crash at one stage and had worked with his navigator for for years but after that they couldn't work together because there was just that tiny little break of trust trust it's a trust thing it was uh, was in that moment of of driving he couldn't be like are you sure about this because yeah. so I guess maybe it's the same with the caddy golfer obviously with less uh, serious consequences but that you can't be sort of questioning you know or or else you know certainly the relationship can be can run run its Distance if something something like that happens. Yeah, yeah I think the only the the only book I can I don't know whether you can remember the Lawrence Donegan four four so, yeah, was a great say, book, yeah. but when he was with the Journeyman, it was different. But it was still really I thought yeah. very really and he, interesting. I suppose book. he wasn't a career caddy; he was more. Yes, a, he was in it just to write yeah. the book. Yeah, yeah exactly. Year, yeah. Yeah, 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 We had him on the golf podcast so recently, and uh, you know it was a fairly grizzled, hard living. Mm. caddy fraternity then I think it's changed a lot now they're all professional caddies like you think of Michael Greller on Jordan Speed's bag or yeah. uh, Colin Byrne you know yeah, it'd be yeah, of yeah. a different uh, yeah, vibe I think to, era, these yeah. lads were like 10 to an apartment and just moaning about how much they hated their player <laughs> like my guy's useless yeah. I gotta get rid of him you know this kind of a culture so you saying all caddies are in but the gym o- now but also the, the Rick Riley book is brilliant that Rick Riley oh, yeah. golf book is brilliant because he has all the caddy lingo what they use against the golfers as well and what they call them as well so there is that whole grizzle thing going on as well still yeah I think yeah. I think honestly the caddies now are very professional yeah yeah. You t- you and, I, and it was one of the explanations given by a, an agent I was talking to as to why so many of the caddies get people in their own family or their mm. own circle on the bag is that they look at the fraternity that was there and they don't like the culture yeah actually fairly or otherwise but they have a perception that it wasn't as professional they want to move away from right. it but considering like Steve Williams is like the highest paid yeah yeah, yeah. I believe he's he's that's the word in New Zealand like yeah. there has to be a, <laughs> exactly, a professionalism yeah. Yeah. probably kind of like the if you see Drive to Survive the Formula One drivers have the, the performance coach yeah, yeah. who appears to be just kind of there to sort of spot them in the gym and tell them they're great yeah when they're you know getting kicked off Mercedes or whatever is yeah. happening they're kind of just around yeah. you know, yeah. cheering them up and you know, but sure that professionalisation of caddies as well is 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 reflects everything in the sport, doesn't it? Yeah, Do you know, it reflects mm. the science that's brought into golf now, and and he's talking even so much as as well about Fitzpatrick and Fitzpatrick what he does on the that's an interesting element of it as well. I think what Very Fitzpatrick does on the practice because you would and, notice when Fitzpatrick walks down a fairway, he's always writing something after a shot. So <laughs> Billy Foster is saying effectively, even in practice. And certainly on the golf course, he notes down every single shot. So uh, Foster says, if you watch him, he'll hit one in the left rough. He'll measure the distance exactly from the middle of the fairway. And he'll say, right, that's 17 yards off the middle. Every detail goes on a spreadsheet and then it spits out the data. And then over the last few weeks, we've changed distances because of the way he's hitting it and so on. So yeah, yeah, I thought it was that's, really uh, they weren't doing that 
10 years ago, Definitely certainly, not. let alone 2030. We'll uh, <laughs> take a short ad break. We're back with more in the papers. We're reviewing the Sunday papers here with Tommy Martin and Kleena Foley. Just on the golfing theme, we were talking touching on that Billy Foster interview with David Walsh before the ad break there and a story which certainly caught your eye Tommy on the front page of the Sunday Times Ryder Cup exclusion for Saudi golf rebels so the sanctions it it would seem that the DP World Tour will impose on those live golf players are going to incrementally build up very very soon to a Ryder Cup ban and I mean what's doubly interesting is it seems speculation Henrik Stenson's management team have been in talks with Liv this is the Ryder Cup captain next Mm. year yeah, that, that would be hugely significant. Just, um, this story, David Walsh uh, in the Sunday Times and also uh, James Corrigan has um, a story about it, a lot of it around what degree will the uh, live tour, uh, will the Saudis basically cover the costs of the fines? Um, <clears throat> and that's an interesting one. Um, in the James Corrigan piece, there's a quote from um, um, uh, an agent of one of the the Liv players uh, who, who appeared at Centurion to say they had yet to hear from Liv because Liv had obviously promised them at the time listen we'll cover any fines you get um, and the quote is we thought Liv would make a big play of this and come straight out and say don't worry we'll handle this uh, the agent said but obviously they haven't and speculating that they, that Liv are going softly softly with the European tour with the DP tour that maybe down the line mm. this you know there's let's not bring out the big guns yet um, and but the, and then the flip side of that is is that there appears to be there's um, a line later in that piece. Uh, Keith Pelly, the DP World Tour chief executive, has been inundated by players who have stayed loyal, asking why the Europe rebels were not treated with similar stringency as the PGA Tour rebels, who were obviously uh, indefinitely suspended from from the tour rather than uh, simply um, be, being fined uh, a fine that would likely be paid by by the live in, in the end. So. So the European Tour, um, I guess, are in the position where the people who have stayed loyal are kind of going, "What's going on here? Are you going to come down heavy on these guys? Is this going to, you know, we've 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 stuck with you. We're 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 all in. We believe in this tour. You got to you got to step up here. And what are what are the uh, DP uh, Tour top brass thinking? Are they thinking we don't want to get into a real big war because there might be a you know a detente somewhere down the line where we're all buddies again? So. Mm. I guess that's... But it, the, the, the Ryder Cup one is probably going to be a, a big high-profile story whether there, Stenson, uh, if Stenson joins with the Live Tour. For sure. There is a quote in that Dave Walsh piece in the front page of the Sunday Times where one European Tour official says, should Henrik cross to the other side, I even love the language there. <laughs> the dark side. The dark yeah. side. He will not be captain at next year's Ryder Cup, which would be quite the story. And and, and the, the Corrigan piece as well intimates that, that there is just possibility that with each one each time they'd play that they'll double up the fines and so therefore as well that's why Liv are probably holding back to see what's going to happen exactly mm. on it so mm. it's uh, unedifying on all sides isn't it really because it's bottom line is about money but it, the bigger the names go over that'll probably well, this raise week's the been big questions usually significant yeah. because I think the Brooks captain oh, the yeah. one on top yeah. of the, the other players now it's sort of real and it's like well this isn't going away and you know and it's getting and I mean Roy McIlroy on the other side as the, the spokesperson, you know, the sort of Luke Skywalker of the uh, <laughs> of the operation. Like he's not holding back on on, on the stuff he's saying. No, you know, there's that. I mean, called Brooks duplicitous. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, that quote. Word. I know you tweeted it out today. Um, I read it last night as well about Sergio saying, "Finally, we're getting paid what we're worth." <laughs> he says, "We're golfers. We shouldn't be paid anything. <laughs> we're already paid way too much." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Never mind the appearance money. <laughs> uh, one last point just to touch on, and then we'll. Uh, move off the golf but it is right across the uh, pages you have to say this afternoon and 
the attention of the golfing world is going to be in Ireland next week. That is most certainly not because of the Irish Open, which will have zero players ranked in the top 10 at the event. It's because of the JP McManus Prime on the Monday and Tuesday after the Irish Open, which of the players in the top 10 will have nine of them playing. Uh, there's a, a comparison here of uh, how the two fields stack up. So, for instance, majors won by field at the Irish Open four, majors won by the field at the JP McManus Prime 49. A number of major winners at the Irish Open, two. Number of major winners at the JP McManus Pro-Am, 21. So it really is, I mean, it, it's extraordinary. Uh, like there isn't a concentration of talent like it outside of the four majors across the golfing year. And Dennis Walsh looks at one of the more intriguing aspects of the JP McManus Pro-Am, how JP and Tiger created the biggest event in Irish golf. And he's uh, trying to, I suppose, chart the discreet friendship that has animated the McManus Pro-Am I think everybody's quite curious about this mm. uh, relationship that they have uh, so for instance your first thought would be money but Dennis Walsh says here of the Pro-Am in 2000 when an Irish tabloid claimed that Tiger was being paid his usual appearance fee of a million dollars to play at the JB McManus Pro-Am the tournament host called the reporter directly and a retraction was published without delay Woods didn't take a cent and when he won the event which was 30,000 pounds at the time he put his winner's cheque back into the pot so what was he doing there and why has he kept coming back asked Dennis Walsh the simple unvarnished answer Dennis has is friendship contact first made in 1998 McManus Dermot Desmond met with Marco Mira Payne Stewart and Woods at the Isleworth Golf Club in Florida persuaded them a few days of Lynx golf in Ireland would be the ideal preparation for the Open once they landed in Shannon they were taken by helicopter to Waterville a few days of golfing, fishing, dining out, drinking late. They loved it so much. A year later, they came back and McManus first invited Woods in 2000 at the 99 Ryder Cup at Brookline. He was assembling a field and according to McManus's account, he raised the possibility of Woods dropping by, not necessarily as a player, but as a guest. Woods could read clearly between the lines. If you're asking me, he said, I'm coming. Neither of them have elaborated on their friendship, but uh, Dennis Walsh points out that Woods married Ellen Nordigan in October 04 at Sandy Lane, which is the resort in Barbados, partly owned by McManus. And uh, it seems... Uh, Far it's more interesting, it was reported, though not confirmed by McManus, because yeah. he doesn't confirm anything, that when he spent 40 million redeveloping Martinstown, his Limerick mansion, that a room was set aside for whenever Woods and Nordigan came to visit. And there are many rooms in that house. I remember seeing a, a plan of it once. <laughs> it's an unusual I, thing, isn't I'm it? not very hard. <laughs> <laughs> the one thing you could say is, you, the one thing you can say about very rich people, and they tend to be men, is uh, if you're that rich and you're that famous and you meet somebody who's equally rich and very discreet and has no reason... Mm. That doesn't to, need anything. doesn't need anything from you or want anything from you, and I always think that that's probably or why mm. you know Woods connected so well with them because here was somebody who was asked him to come along to a thing, do him a favour. It was a charity event, still is, and it has raised you know massive, massive amounts. It's told it to uh, and that's totaled here. Yeah, yeah, that's the one thing about it. I think it's one hundred and forty million dollars raised million, for yeah. good causes. Yeah. The last one in phenomenal. Ten, last one ten years ago raised forty. Mm. Yeah. So and they're, they're going to break that. I think there's around. that element of it, isn't there? That like if point. you if you're that paranoid yeah. as a tiger clearly is, given his his life story, um, and you meet somebody who doesn't want anything from you mm. and offers you the hand of friendship and 
you know, the opportunity to go somewhere, you know, and just be yourself and relax. I think I think that's yeah. It I think seems it's a great, a great piece be because, uh, as you say, it pulls back the curtain on that on that world a bit. I remember being reporting at the the 2010 one, and being um, along the fairway watching woods, and it was there's a little um, a few lines from that press conference because it was woods first. Uh, appearance outside of the US after right. the scandal. Yeah, yeah. I never forget that press conference that oh. he did before the the pro am. It was he was a, he was a ball of hostility Ox. and uh, <laughs> oh yeah, Ox indeed, yeah. hostility just to, uh, absolute. You know because every reporter there was told to go there and ask him a question that somehow kind of like you know it was part of the sort of general kicking that that he was getting and and you know there's quotes here one word answers and everything and it was just that that hostile you know angry um whatever yeah all of emotions that he was at that time uh, and then following him on the course uh he, he was waiting to tee off uh, at one of the holes and up ahead of him was um the four ball involving dermot desmond and so Dermot Desmond is obviously playing a shot about 100 yards up ahead, sees Tiger Woods, the two of them walk towards each other and throw their arms open wide and give and the, the biggest hug, you know, back slapping hug, like, and, and a genuine sort of, um, a genuine expression of emotion or friendship or, you know, great to see you, whatever. There was a whole lot, you know, encountered in that. I was going, what? Like, what is that? Like, what? you know, this is Tiger Woods, you know, this is a guy, like, beyond the stratosphere of, of any very few sports stars are in that sort of realm of you know of significance and, and cultural import like and I've never seen never seen him yeah. you know publicly uh, engage with another human being in that way and like well, what is it and like I guess this piece sort of maybe touches behind you know pulls back that curtain and it's just you know that sort of thing of here's some, another rich people who don't want anything from me show me a good time I can you know, relax, mm. and I don't know. I don't know what it was, but it was. It was really. Um, it really hinted at what, at what, what the the weird and really incredible kind of dynamic behind this whole uh, this whole yeah, thing I, is. I, it's so odd because I feel Tiger Woods must meet billionaires most weeks of his life yeah. as well. Hank Haney has a podcast. Woods his former coach, and he was chatting about the JP Mass problem because I was again uh, just you wouldn't think they'd have natural things in common necessarily, or be chatting for hours and end about Limerick Hurley, yes. but, you know. <laughs> And uh, Haney's pretty forthright and he was saying his sense of it was you get treated so well it's such a good time that's basically the nub of it. Yeah mm. but I think I think with J.P. McManus and, and this piece mind you as well does point out mm. which I always think is worth pointing out that for all of his fla- philanthropy he's a tax exile you know and that's all part of, of where he is in mm. his life mm. but there's a discretion about he doesn't talk he doesn't do interviews mm. he doesn't speak to anybody yeah. He really does not engage with media at all. So maybe that's part, that trust, particularly yeah. that, that part for, for Woods you, as You're well. probably right. As for the, for the here, golfer yeah. who's named his yacht Privacy. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you might value that in a fellow billionaire. <laughs> you would love to listen into a few conversations, though. Yeah. It would be interesting. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, he's going to be there on Monday, Tuesday week. Didn't play the US Open, but he's there at the uh, JP McManus Prom. So that'll be uh, extraordinary, really. And that's on after the Irish Open, which is on this week. That is the golf done and dusted with. So, like I said, lots of it in the papers this afternoon. 
on the rugby front I have that jotted down next uh, there's a huge amount of previewing of Ireland New Zealand yeah there's w- massive the Sunday Times go really big really they've big got a seven it. page mm. special but it's not just on Ireland it's on the tours it's, the it's, tour. well it's also on the it's also on the home nations and where they're going and what's going to happen you know you could be reading about it forever really because you know and there's a little they have all the dates and everything and yeah. the Sunday Times have done that all the papers have but I actually like the Mail on Sundays because I think Rory Keane's piece about it kind of encompasses everything that everybody's asking about the Irish team and about team selections and all the rest and then there's a good piece too by Hugh Farley who would have been down in New Zealand in 20 uh, was it 2012 you know um, and he has kind of a you know good memory good good insight into that particular tour as well but uh, Roy Keane really you know really summarises quite a lot of, of I think what Ireland are going to be facing and the key issues for them you know um, Kieran Frawley's raised um positionally you know the first test is always your best chance to beat them it's all that sort of themes that have uh, is being rehearsed and of course very interesting which paper is it the Sunday Times point out that um, uh, Joe Smith will not be doing any mm. any interviews <laughs> because his contract doesn't the, start yeah, until yeah. after the tour um, and that's an interesting piece as well is that Peter O'Reilly yeah. Um, so um, yeah Ireland's black spot is the headline on that as well so that bit might, might interest people as well just talking about Schmidt's place behind in the background and and his I thought the interesting was for his first pro- presentation even Bowden Barrett turned up with a notepad and pen ready to scribble down el- every relevant details or or, pay, or perhaps afraid to miss a detail yeah Schmidt's reputation as a martinet clearly preceded him but he's obviously it's going to be a sensitive area I'd say yeah he said uh, Peter Riley this is because the, the general tone is like in Rory's pieces Ireland are balancing trying to develop certain players with yeah. the value of winning a test match on New Zealand soil but two weeks ago Ireland R- Ruby Media received a group message from All Blacks Communications Department Joe Schmidt would not be doing any interviews before the test series <laughs> uh, they were shocked Peter O'Reilly <laughs> didn't say uh, we were reminded that Schmidt's new role as All Blacks selector slash analyst that's his official title does not begin until after the Irish Rugby Tour in time for the Rugby Championship he says perhaps not but this has not stopped the cult of Joe growing in New Zealand because in effect Joe Schmidt's been involved with the Blues of late. Uh, again, not no precise coaching title, but he's done an extraordinary job. There's been a massive upturn in the Blues play since Schmidt went in. And now Ian Foster, who's under massive pressure because obviously Ireland beat them in November and France beat them as well. And so he's been spending the months trying to convince Schmidt to get involved. I'd say there's a degree of like get in so he doesn't take over <laughs> if this goes badly and so the sense uh, Peter Riley has is that once you get Schmidt involved he just won't be able to help himself then and yeah. he said that's what happened with yeah. the Blues that you know he just went in initially as like a consultant but pretty soon he's down there doing the warm ups oh. in his tracksuit yeah. you know <laughs> affecting Every everything detail. yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. uh, so Schmidt's going to be there in some capacity and presumably hev- heavily involved but uh, won't be speaking to the media or won't be to the fore but you would anticipate he'll have his fingerprints over everything. But that is kind of an interesting subplot. Yeah. And as I said, Roy, Roy Keane's piece kind of summarises all the things. You know, how do you how do you prepare for the next World Cup and this test series yeah. with with an ageing, you know, with some ageing players, with front row? You know, there's all kind of... A lot of people rehearse the same kind of Yeah, I think that there's really. a lot of... Yeah, um, sorry, yeah, that piece does summarise the, the does, themes, yeah. which is that there's, there's potentially huge upside in this tour for, for the Irish set up you know with that whole pre-World Cup momentum and you know imagine another milestone would be win, uh, winning in, in New Zealand but there seems to be huge downsides as well because 
you go to New Zealand and you're not at yourself and they're absolutely you at themselves, you can get absolutely yeah. murdered. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think that's all that, which I, I kind of ha- can't help but feel to have such huge, such potentially big things um, riding on what is an end of season tour. Like, I just cannot get my head around rugby being played in July. I and I know it's not July, I know it's July over there, but it's winter over there. But it, it just sometimes feel our summer tour guys going out, it always feels a bit like, oh God, yeah. here we go. <laughs> you know, like in November. You know, yeah. which well, is probably and, and what you're the hitting them at the time of year when they're much fitter. Yeah. So that's the thing. It's, it just like always seems like a tough ask. It you know, is. And, that's, uh, and everybody's, there's loads of people pointing out what's happened before. And is the, your, the first test is your best chance to beat them, even though we haven't won there in years. Yeah. Um, but. If it goes wrong, usually everything. The well, there's, can they're come saying off. you're a long way from home. It's no, it's no coincidence. <laughs> Especially New Zealand, do they like to point that out? <laughs> yeah. They're saying in the paper as well. It's no coincidence that New Zealand have chosen Eden Park for the first yeah. game where they yeah. haven't been beaten since '94. So they recognise yeah. as well. Let's win the first game and then we're up and running. I'm curious uh, for both your thoughts on what we have here in Luther Burrell because this could potentially become an inquiry akin to what we saw in cricket in rugby. Uh, Luther Burrell has played for England. He's 32 years of age. He'd be a very well-known player. And he's been interviewed exclusively here by Nick Simon in the Mail on Sunday about racism in the dressing room. And the initial part of the interview is how uh, Nick Simon had a phone call with Luther Burrell about racism in rugby more generally a while back. And his answer was, it's rife. And then they went for an off the record dinner a few months later and Luther Burrell talked about what he had experienced and has now decided to go public with it. Mm. And he talks about how I've been nervous doing this. They met in a coffee shop. I didn't sleep much last night. This is a scary subject to broach. I don't know how it will be received. And he talked about his dad, you know, wondering, are you going to do it, not do it? And he said, I'm going to do it. He stresses he's not going to name names. He says, this isn't a witch hunt. I don't want people to feel sorry for me. A lot of what's said isn't even malicious, but it's become normal and it needs to be addressed. And he talked about in part, what helped him make up his mind up about going public was the thought of his mixed race children being on the receiving end of what he's received. So, for instance, uh, Burrell's been in the professional game since 06. He said, um, things get said in jest without any thought every week, every fortnight. Comments about bananas when you're making a smoothie in the morning. Comments about fried chicken when you're out <coughs> for dinner. I've heard things you wouldn't expect to hear 20 years ago. We had a hot day at training and I told one of the lads to put on their Factor 50. Someone came back and said, you don't need it, Luth. Put your carrot oil on. Then another lad jumps in and says, no, 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 he'll need it for where his shackles were as a slave. Excuse my language, but where the F does that come from? Some people shake their heads, others laugh along with it. People greet you as, what's up my N? It's not meant in a bad way, but when is it going to change? It's a very, very raw subject. Over the past few years, it has happened a lot. That's the environment. It's normalised because I'm allowed... Sorry, it's normalised because I allowed it to become normalised. I'd laugh it off. I've been a coward by not speaking up. Over the years, I've become thicker skinned. And he said he's at an age now at 32 where he feels he can speak up. He says if you're 20 and there's a hierarchy, you're just told, you know, be quiet. And so it's hard for a younger player to speak up. He says, after a few beers, I have said to fellow teammates, mate, you've got to stop saying that. But it never changed anything. You just get, we love you really, mate, back. If I was 10 years younger, no way would I be sat here doing this you want to fit in he says I'm sure there are clubs that don't have a problem but rugby clubs don't have HR departments uh, like the real world Um, yeah one of the lines he says rugby is a high testosterone environment with a lot of big personalities like I can't believe those comments I mean I just I can't credit that adult people would use those comments do you know what I mean it's it's just beyond my comprehension and all you can now we don't know whether they're 
fellow club players, fellow schools players, fellow internationals. But either way, I just can't believe that anybody thinks like that. And it's just absolutely shocking. We were just talking about it and saying that, you know, maybe maybe you will have a situation like cricket in England where mm. it might spark an investigation or certainly. He says he won't name names. Mm. Um, there are some really interesting things. He, he, he like, it smacks of that, you know, entitled, you know, that um, entitled obnoxiousness that just comes from people who are, you know, I just see themselves as superior to everybody else. Um, and, you know, he says it's de- rugby definitely has a class issue and he talks about Ellis Genge, you know, he's saying he says he makes that point. He says about Genge getting messages, calling him a N-word mm. would Mario Toje, you know, and that are, that always has been like Mario. It's always been pointed out Mario Toje comes from that private school background, you know, but whatever or wherever people come from, it's just shocking. You know, he talks about growing up in a council estate in Huddersfield. Uh, his parents worked exceptionally hard and I wasn't given any freebies. Do football changing rooms have this type of stuff being around? No, because it's far more divorce. I actually disagree with that. I suspect football, I, I suspect there is some element of it and we see this racism in, in, in British football. So we, we know there is an element of it. But is there is there more a class element to this, you know, and is racism more pronounced um, for that reason, perhaps, you know, in English uh, rugby? But I, I, I find it shocking, really well, shocking. It, he does talk about class as well. He said, you see the rugby culture and you see the cricket culture. They're a very similar class. Guys from these feeder schools at the stuff that came out from cricket it's recently didn't yeah. surprise me, he says. Yeah, it's that privileged entitled thing of, you know, we're going to always follow this course in life because we have, you know, we have private educations. You know, this will take a certain place in our lives. And so we're we, for some reason we can we can make comments, you know, and, and judge other people. I think what's re- I really think what's interesting is when the f- I don't know if you noticed this towards the end of this interview. And he says, I'll tell you what's funny. All the black people I spoke to about this, in other words, by talking out about this, said, uh, do it. The white people were all supportive, but they said things like, oh, do you do you not want to get your contract sorted first? Yeah. I think that's mm. very interesting. I think this blows up massively now. If there was a Westminster committee looking into what happened in cricket, I don't yeah. see how they can sit in yeah. their hands with this. Yeah, I think, you know, he, he refers to the, the rugby culture and you see the cricket culture. They're very similar class guys from those feeder schools. The stuff that came out of cricket recently didn't surprise me. I think, uh, it, you know, it's, it's it's a further example of what you get when you have the, the dangers of a small, sort of culturally narrow caste um, involved in something. I think what, he, what he's mean about the football environment is that is, it is a much more diverse. More diverse, uh, yeah, But probably yeah, at course. an institutional level, I'm sure, yes. you know, there's still, you still have so few black, uh, people, in, black people in positions of uh, authority and, and management. Yeah. Um, but here, like, it smacks of that sort of, you know, Boris Johnson talking about, you know, um, watermelon smiles and, you know, p- picking innies, like that sort of, like, you know, post-imperial, um, low, like, lowbrow, um, you know, public school humour yeah. that is a way of underlining that sense of cultural superiority that that does seem to come through uh, come through like it's interesting it is an interesting piece because you you do read it and you're shocked and it's and then they go on to talk about like is there is does the class element uh, uh, explain it or is it the fact that maybe english rugby is still large majority sort of a a quite privileged sport i I mean i don't know but to back to your point joe like once you start and think with the cricket story was once you start picking away at what's going on here it's very hard not to for this to end up to be a root and branch study of what is going on because if if this is going on and there's a, you know a guy who's been 
I mean, he's finished now. He seems to be finished now in English club rugby and maybe looking to play in J Japan and obviously feels ready to come out mm. and talk about it. There's clearly loads of other players have just said, oh, I'm not dealing with it. And that, that line about get your contract sorted first and keep your head down, make your living. Like that's the, that's been the sort of the, the fuel for, you know, people putting up with crap for in all sorts of, you know, areas, be it's, you know, uh, gender, race or, or whatever down through the years. Um, so if this is something that, you know, once, once sponsors start getting involved yeah. in what's going on here, this could end up, you know, gathering momentum. Mm. Huge momentum. And it's, you know, it's interesting. The only, as you said, Kleene, you wonder what's the perspective of those who are doing it. The only glimpse we get of that is when he says, and this is very similar to the cricket conversation which happened, is when he mentions after a few beers, he has said to teammates, mate, yeah. you've got to stop saying that. Their response is, oh, we love you really, mate. So Bants, there's this sense know, almost Bants, of actually, you know. not only is it just banter, it's almost even a step further of brotherhood that I can say this to you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because mm. we're that such good mates. That shows how close we are. Yeah, yeah, that seems to be the perception that he's on the receiving bizarre. end of, I think. Yeah. And his, and his own openness and his own, uh, you know, integration is, is really reflected because he says at the end of it, he says, I want to look back and, and, and he wants to talk because he said, my, my son or my daughter yeah. might end up in one to be professional rugby players, you know, and it's very interesting. Maggie Alfonsi has said in England that she intends running for um, mm. the, the, the head of the RFU over there towards 2025, which is really interesting. A black woman. Yeah. How interesting would that be? Well, I, I, put it into, <coughs> I put his name into Google News this morning when I first read this to see what the uptake was. And straight away, the Daily Telegraph on their website had Luther Burrell. I've had the N word used to me. Mm. Mm this thing will be huge and this will be dominating in 24 yeah. hours time. So yeah, I and it is, it is that thing that you talk about, that dressing room culture where it's sort of a, the, the people, you know, dishing it out think, well, I'll tell you how you should feel about this. Sure. It's just banter and, you know, you should, you know, you shouldn't be offended by this and, you know, that won't, uh, that won't stand up for long. Mm. Well, that's an exclusive. It's in the Mail on Sunday by Nick Simon and it's Luther Burrell, the English international, still only 32 years of age, very much a current rugby player and it seems he's, gone forward and back for several months about whether or not to speak publicly mm. and he most certainly has so it's a two page spread there in the mail on Sunday we'll take a very short break back with more on the Sunday papers in just a moment you're welcome back 58 minutes on the clock Armagh back to within three of Galway Galway won 12 Armagh 12 points is where we are we'll be over to James O'Donoghue if anything significant happens over the closing 10 minutes or so we have Clean Foley and Tommy Martin here in the studio we'll move to GEA then for a moment so uh, Paul Kimmage is uh, writing about GA interviews on the back of a piece Sean McGoldrick <coughs> wrote last week in the Sunday World and it struck Paul Kimmage he was out following Shane Larry at the US Open and who popped up there only Paul Mannion who actually was on the show uh, this week ironically uh, because he's out playing for Boston Donegal and he was following Shane Larry around and Paul Kimmage was kind of it was striking him they'd never crossed each other's paths and it was only as Mannion's retired now you kind of hear from him a bit more and he was saying on the back of McGoldrick's claim that this has been the worst year in Sean McGoldrick's career covering GA for interviews. I think the Sunday World uh, thus far have had three interviews across the entire summer and that is the way it's going and even ahead of the quarterfinals there weren't press days or certainly none that the Sunday World were invited to and we've bemoaned this direction I suppose for quite some time. It would strike me the pandemic has been used, mm. you know, never let a good crisis go to waste as the 
way mm. to just almost phase these press days out totally. Like they just haven't resumed post pandemic. Well, as long as I've been guessing on this slot, we've been talking about this <laughs> issue. But actually, I was flicking through the Sunday Independent from the front and reading the GA coverage and getting past the match reports from yesterday into the previews from today. And there's a piece about Mayo, <coughs> the general piece, uh, Dermot Crow about Mayo and lack of forwards, which talks to former Mayo players. Tommy Conlon has a piece about the tactical aspects of a Colm O'Rourke general preview. And I was just thinking, God, there's no... Uh, you know, you never get a big interview, like a big, you know, piece. Like you never get a big, you know, a player posing, you know, in his farm or in his factory or you know, in his office or whatever the week before a game, talking or whenever it was, and talking about his hopes and dreams. Like you are certainly rarely get it. And then I literally turned the page, and actually across my mind, the famous uh, David Walsh uh, story that one of his famous stories back with the uh, Irish press days when he he went went to basically. Uh, embedded himself with the Offaly, uh, Offaly footballers before the 1982 All-Ireland Final. It's kind of the seminal sort of moment of G- uh, media GA relations and it's been downhill ever since. And I, It did cross my mind. I literally turned the page and it's what Kim was just talking about. I, co- I couldn't be in more agreement and it just strikes me so much. I'm going to Croke Park yesterday and uh, just how like absolutely nothing against any of the players and they're all we, we know they all have fascinating stories and interesting perspectives because whenever they, we do get out get to talk to them and hear from them that, that's all the case but how distant they all are you know they all yes. come running out and they do you do feel that certain detachment of them from from them whereas if you read your paper you know or whatever way you consume your your uh, media the morning of a, of a big match and there's a, a feature with this guy and this guy from from the other team then you go to the match and you have a sense of there's a whole other context, a whole whole greater engagement. Mm-hmm. Like, look, it's it's as I say, it's it's an old argument that's been on for years. I think it's incredibly, and not just from I'm not speaking from media bias, incredibly um, potent, long-term damaging for the GEA. I just think I just think that from uh, uh, institutional level, they need to get a handle on this and say, listen, yeah. we need to do a press conference, a manager and a player, some way before every big game. It's tied in with uh, revenues. It's tied in with GPA funding. It's yeah. there. It's not the end of the world. It's not going to kill you. We need it for the promotion of our games. And if you're going to have this season where the early part of the season is running, uh, competing with Champions League and uh, Heineken Cup and all, and all that sort of stuff, you need to start you know, tooling up for that battle because what they're doing at the moment is... But the yeah, football but season seems to have just whizzed by. It's yeah, well, I, look, this year, is, I just... I don't know how anybody's going to reflect on this year really because so much has been squished into so little time that I, I, there isn't even room for half the stuff that's there anyway. But they do it. I don't know, Tommy. Look, I don't know. It's, is, is it just journalists are obsessed with this? Um, do, do the public really care? I feel, I think they, I think there's a disconnect with fans, I think. I think that's what I think people miss is that they they don't see, they, they only see them now as inter-county automatons, if you like, mm. who have this life that they live as well as trying to do, and so many of them are students, um, and that there is a little bit of a disconnect there. I, I think there is that. And, and in that, I think what's lost maybe is, the, is, the, is an appreciation for who they are as people and what they have to combine their their professional GA, mm. you know, training with. That's what I think is maybe lost, is that, that it actually disconnects you from 
how bloody hard they work and how hard their lives are. I think that's that's what's been lost. I think that's a real pity. Mm. But they still do stuff for sponsors. And the problem with that is the same people are thrown out by sponsors and they're the big names. And we know so much about them already. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I, I but I, I, I agree with you. But I think sometimes maybe that's just a journalistic obsession that we have. But I don't I'd think love I'd to know what the public think. On it. Yeah, but I, I think public will still support their county, love their county. But they will. You, you wouldn't be as, as aware of it as a fan that like you don't see or hear that much from, from your players but over time it's kind of a yeah. boiling a frog thing that you don't really realise till you sort of don't start, stop caring about things as much you know that yeah. you know that sort of level of engagement you know yeah, um, yeah look I, I just yeah t- definitely think with the with, with the level of competition like t- like working in, in sort of the, the day-to-day media like you do spend a lot of your time saying well you know such and such a manager Jurgen Klopp said this and that sets the agenda for for this game, and he came back and said that, and li- like it is regarded as sort of tittle tattle and kind of, you know, a, a lot of kind of, uh, you know, ma- it's not as significant as as the matches themselves, but it generates buzz, it generates context, up, yeah. you know, it's 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 part of the, the old, you know, the, the old. The interesting today, the game press conference, where wherever the yeah. players, if you had McGinney and Park well, Joyce, I was just about to say, just about to say that, but yeah. actually, McGinney and Park Joyce, it's a brilliant example of it because because there's been a few pieces today's papers about McGinney and Park Joyce about who they were as players, you know, their personalities, how how interesting they were, and how interesting it is now yeah. that they're both involved at this stage, right? Mm. And and. You know, in 10 years time, if there's an intercounty player who's a manager, you, you won't really, I don't know, have that insight into their personality no. only because of the way it's gone. Mm. There's that there's that for sure. In it. Donaghy there standing beside McGinney. I mean, oh, yeah. I, I don't know who the modern day fellas are because McGinney, you know, Roy Keane-esque, you would think, did nothing with the media. But I vividly remember McGinney with BBC Ulster and it was shown on BBC. He did a thing where like he let the TV crew come with him while he was doing his training and when he was doing his shopping and he spent an ungodly amount of money on fruit and vegetables each week <laughs> and it just gave you yeah. look he didn't bear his soul but he gave you enough to God I'm interested in that fella. I always remember was it one, the one about was it not the McIntyre tunes or somebody else who they, they used to take the butter off their sandwiches you know after training <laughs> that's how that's how obsessive they were but it's little details like yeah. that that tell you so much I mean, you just resonate? don't get them anymore they do resonate yeah, yeah. Um, the other thing I suppose is I don't, and I don't have a lot of sympathy for managers because I think in the GA the problem is that a lot of managers think they're managing Man United and they're yeah. not, and they think they're doing a professional job in terms of media and they're not. Yeah. Um, just because they don't have the training even to think, you know, to do it the yeah. right way, but there has been such a proliferation of media as well, you know, that things have changed. You know, in Parry yeah, Joyce, that's true. Parry Joyce and McGinney and those were probably towards the end of you know, old media and now you've got so many different forms yeah. of media. And then as well, players can now tell their own stories on their own social media. Mm. So we may all be mm. obsolete, obsolete but, in a couple more well, years time. But, you know, I go back to the original <laughs> point. I don't think it's doing any good for, for, for the... I mean, yeah. look, you, you look at the, the big story of this GA season off, apart from the actual games themselves was the handshake. And yeah, yeah, it is like, as with Premier League handshakes of different forms down down the years, it, it is a ridiculous thing to be getting in and out about. But people are interested in other people. And we look at the personalities involved and we're fascinated by, that's why people talk about, you know, oh, let, we want to analyse the game and, you know, the, the granular detail of analysis. We, yeah, but we want to talk about the personalities as well because we're human beings. And, and the rivalry. You see Henry Shefflin and Brian Cody and there's clearly something going on there. Like, that's 
incredibly fascinating yeah. well, thing I, to, and it sets up totally. you know the whole context for the I always think there's a thing uh, akin to when people you know do you want Joe Brawley uh, in full flow or do you want like a good solid analysis of what the corner forward did and there's that thing in Malcolm Gladwell where if you ask people what kind of coffee they want they say I like rich dark coffee whereas the blind <laughs> tests have shown people like weak <laughs> milky coffee and that is we want we want talk, talk to me about going around about Cody and Shefflin yeah, don't yeah, tell yeah, me what yeah. the full yeah. forward but, but was actually, doing but actually and yeah. also I think the really interesting thing and that whole debate about Sunday game and all the rest now is really interesting as well because you now can get 625 podcasts who give you the analysis mm. loads of former players talking loads of you can get that analysis somewhere else but if you're trying to produce you know a, a something that appeals to the mm. general public as you said that you have loads of human interest in as well as the, as the sport end of it it's a different thing I draw the line I absolutely draw the line I'm sorry at Desi Farr last night being asked about his captain and his co-captain I think missing and he's interviewed after the game and they haven't played and he's asked what are their injuries right. and he says I couldn't possibly say was that what the comment was oh I don't uh, know oh, Philip yeah, Lannigan you Philip played Lannigan. it earlier this morning I think it was, I think I heard a clip on the, on the radio this morning even Philip though it's Lannigan common knowledge it's hamstring yeah and he can't confirm. To confirm yeah I'd prefer not to say prefer not to say oh, now please what yeah. what benefit of is that because all that's going to create now is a vacuum for journalists to go chasing all week to ask everybody like, you see this is what I'm saying about how they don't I just don't think they get it you that, know that's, that's only silly. Yeah, that's that doesn't help stuff. anything. Yeah, that yeah. doesn't help anybody. If anything does create a vacuum, do you start a WhatsApp rumour about someone Yeah, now, you know? now the WhatsApps yeah. are going to go crazy and this, you know, no benefit there'll be even more rumour in it. And I just, mm. I, this is where I think that it's it's gone so far the wrong, the other direction. I agree with you, Tommy. It's just gone nuts now. You I know? know. I was up in Derry with Tony Scullion and oh, uh, Andrew Gormley on, on uh, Wednesday. Like, there was such a richness <laughs> to their stories oh. and the way they did things. Oh. And uh, look, it, it's not what it was. And of course, we got to move with the times, but man, it, it was better. <laughs> it's just more. It was more romantic, for and it was yeah. for, everybody. for everybody. It was for the better. consumers as well. And it's interesting. Uh, Pat Spillane has a piece today in the Sunday World about uh, going to the to the matches to you know, and his son playing for Sligo, and just uh, he says everybody he met in Crow Park that day at the Talton Cup finals said. What's Brolly really like? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Brolly talked to Isn't it so funny? Like, yeah. that's still what they keep asking yeah. him. Human beings, you know. Yeah, like, and, we and love that, watching that the games. Yeah. The relationship between people. Yeah, and so I, think, I think as, look, the nature of progress is that these, they, they are a lot more outlet. They're not going for a rake of pints tonight before the game and smoking, you know, smoking a, a Benson and Hedges at half time. You know, they're not those romantic, romantic sort of characters. But they are human beings. They are interesting guys. They're funny guys. They're, you know, they've got interesting careers different challenges in, in life and any time they do come forward tends to be they tend to be well, really interesting really, really interesting and, and but their stories get told by professional people who know how to tell a story and you know yeah. it's yeah. it just means when you're watching them you're that bit extra yeah. invested yeah. I think is the that's what it comes short down to, version yeah. uh, so uh, two pieces on the FINA decision Ian yeah. Herbert first of all it gives an insight into how the decision is made. Eamon Sweeney is more giving his verdict on where he thinks sport is moving when it comes to trans athletes. So Ian Herbert is talking about the FINA vote. It was on in Budapest at the uh, Puskas Arena. 152 individuals uh, were voting on behalf of their various countries' bodies. And so uh, the FINA play in Budapest, he said it secured a 71.5% vote in favour of the uh, policy on eligibility, which effectively banned any transgender athletes who had gone through puberty. So they would have had to complete their gender transition by the age of 12. Otherwise, they're banned from 
competition. 13.1% abstained. I think that's really, mm. really interesting. It is. And also it was pointed out, and, and this is the reason why uh, Nikki Dryden, who's a Canadian former Olympic swimmer turned human rights lawyer, she thinks this is going to be appealed because it would seem over in Budapest that the people who voted were given 14 minutes to read the technical paper that FINA provided them with. pages of it. Yeah, so she says the whole thing around how the policy was passed is to be challenged. This is not the end of it. This will go all the way up to CAS. So it certainly looks, by the way FINA presented it, and I can't say for certain, but it looks like they were very much of a mind to... Uh, have the vote passed. And well, yeah, it is. It is. It was such a dramatic decision, and it is. This is interesting insight into how it was, how it was made, if you like, which you, we, people may not have got initially. And mm. um, I think it's very worth it, it, worth it. But to show how small the sport world is, and this element of the sport world at that high level is as well, it is interesting because you've one person saying, "Yeah, this is going to get appealed in CAS," and then in the article he points out, Fina's confident because the exec, it's it's dir- executive director Brent Nowitz who led Sunday's presentation is a former managing counsel at CAS while the expert FINA has engaged on the policy include James Drake OC a London based former CAS arbitrator mm. so you know anybody who's involved mm. at this level in sport they, they mm. know that they know the scene and sometimes they're very involved in other elements of the scene so that's interesting um, but it, 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 it does give some insight on I think the 13.1% abstained is very interesting because this is such a vexed and difficult question and it's Eamon Sweeney, you know, I think probably hits the nail on the head um, in one, even just one sentence in his piece. He, he does it, which is he says the idea of privileging inclusion over fairness may seem strange. Surely competitive integrity trumps all. But the issue isn't quite that simple. Yeah, know? he's not in favour of this ban, Eamon Sweeney, on the back page of the Sunday Independent. And it does seem hockey, triathlon are all... And moving to make a move now. Sebco was very much yeah. yeah, yeah Sebco's line is where where we're making a judgment about fairness or inclusion. I will always fall down on the side of fairness, but others take a different view. And that's again. But that's, that's again summarising the, nub of, the, the yeah. nub of it, isn't it? And I I I, I remember um, being involved in a discussion with this a couple of years ago, and um, a, a trans woman said to me that one of her problems is that she just wants to play sport at a community level. Uh-huh. But that the rules that apply to her are the rules that apply to sport at an mm. elite level within her sports governing body. And that's interesting, even mm. isn't it? I, that had never really struck me. Um, and I also somebody in a very uh, quite in one of the Irish governing bodies told me that they had women playing trans women playing sport, but it hadn't been officially passed by the NGB. But it was agreed between clubs at the level that they were playing at mm they were not deemed to be a danger because it was it was a contact sport. So it's just such a complicated, you know, complicated yes, yeah. system. I think Amos Williams does a very good job, but I don't know what you yeah, think. Yeah, I think it's a, a really good job, job um, because it's two, there are two sort of different moral universes sort of against each other here. There's, there's sport and like sport is a bubble in so many ways with its own um, moral context and ethical context, as we know from all the other stories around, you know, the the human rights, etc. But then, yeah. you know, <clears throat> we tend to sort of get really narrow and say, like, well, this is the this is the way things are in sport, and that's where you know the fairness. I did the idea of fairness is fundamental to uh, anybody who's you know takes part or watches or covers or is in, remotely interested in, is in, in sport. That it's it's you know it's the old Corinthian ideal, like, but inclusion is. Underpinning uh, human rights uh, value 
of our, our, our greater society that we liked. And we see it, we see it, um, you know, getting attacked in, this, in the US at the moment, mm -hmm. you know, in a bit. And, mm -hmm. and what's great about Sweeney's piece is he talks about how, you know, those on, on the other side of, of the um, argument, they're, they're not always taking a, a cold and, and impartial view on it that, you know, many of the same states that are now uh, in which abortion is, is now uh, illegal in the states have also um, acted to um, to follow up on this uh, uh, and banning trans uh, athletes uh, as well. In other words, it's a culture war um, uh, tool as well. Um, the the like the you know, so come back to the sort of ethics of sport. And I know it, like does reference to uh, Dr. Ross Tucker. Mm. You know, like uh, Joe, you'll probably be able to put his view into a lot better than yes. me because I know he's been on the show quite a lot. But it, you know, I think it's that that you know, male female is a classification as such, in, in the same way that other classifications within sport, and therefore you need to have a line yeah. where that classification he, is drawn. He, he said it's like akin to why we different weight categories in in boxing. It's to mm -hmm. somehow level the playing field. It's so that if if otherwise, if we just had the human race Olympics, the women wouldn't win mm -hmm. most of the events. Is the is the truth? Uh, from memory, Ross Tucker effectively made the point that uh, sport really has just run away from this for as long as mm. it possibly can. And the International Olympic Committee in the last uh, couple of months, last November, the International Olympic Committee got together and said, this is an off the record summary, but they said, this is way too complicated for this us. This is a huge let's just let hot potato. Let's just yeah. spin it back each, out to the NGBs. Yeah, each individual bodies. sport, yeah. you figure it out and we'll be right behind you. Yeah up to you guys and so sport is now grappling that's why swimming are having this mm. vote and the other mm. sports are having this vote Ross Tucker said and it's a point lots won't like and lots will agree with but he said from his point of view uh, this old tactic of reducing testosterone after puberty does not work the residual benefits endure and so he said sport is now going to have to decide if it wants to be about and Eamon Sweeney uses the same point here is sport going to be about fairness or is sport going to prioritise inclusivity mm. because he said on the fairness point for him he said it's not even complicated science mm. that it's not complicated science that the advantages once you've gone through puberty are not reduced significantly or to the extent required with testosterone levels reduced so he said from a scientific point of view this is very clear cut but if we talk about sport in terms of society, what it's meant to represent, then that's where we have to have an incredibly complicated conversation. And, I, and, I, and you do and you do, and I followed Ross Tucker for a long time, you know, because just on sports science alone. Yeah. But there are also sports scientists who, who say differently sure. from him. And that's what mm. I find very confusing well, is that there are different there are different experts saying different things and also saying different things in relation to, you know, endurance sport and power sport and mm. different things. And that's where it's the masses count. What chance do we have if the science yeah, disagrees? Yeah, you know? yeah, and I heard disagrees. Ken Early make the point during the week, for instance, like, you know, the, the masses can be swayed by things like the visuals of Leah Thomas, the swimmer, who was head and shoulders literally above her competition winning and instinctively saying, well, that can't That's be right. Yeah. Yeah. We don't know about the science or the power output or what's happened there. We just don't. We, we're not scientifically trained to make those decisions. Um, and I, and I, yet it's been, it has certainly become weaponized and an area yeah. where I think as some of probably the political uh, testing 
has realised that it is an area where the general public look at the Leah Thomas example and say, oh yeah, that can't be right. And they're on board with reducing trans rights in that sphere. Yeah, so that's becomes, almost... Uh, let's yeah, another front on the whole of oh, society's gone to hell in a handbasket. Yeah. You know, we need yeah. to roll back. You know, and everything has been granted. Yeah. Yeah. And so they're, they're probably ploughing money and he into co- that further. And, and Eamon Sweeney quotes the Laurel Hubbard, you know, the New Zealander, the weightlifter who yeah. went and finished last, you know, as it happened in the Olympics in that category. I saw that. But then the yeah. counter argument could be Laurel Hubbard potentially took the place well, of a New Zealand athlete who, whose dream it was to absolutely, go to the Absolutely, absolutely. So that's, that's where the complications is. I'm so sorry. Go ahead. We'll, we'll come back to this conversation. <gasps> James O'Donoghue, we're just going to line him up now. We'll get the thumbs up from the lads when we can go to James because Armagh have equalised in this game in the 80th minute <laughs> and it has gone full time. James O'Donoghue, it's gone full time. We have a draw here. We do indeed. There's just a bit kicking off here as the teams are going into the tunnel. Armagh got an outrageous equaliser to Reno O'Neill. There was a foul over on the Cusack stand. It must have been 45 metres out. Reno O'Neill put it down and he has slapped it over. Everybody was jumping, fist pumping, even down on the sideline from the management. Now the players are going in the tunnel and there was a full-on brawl going on over there. This is going to be a very interesting second half, but that game absolutely took off with 10 minutes, 10 minutes left to play. Kieran Donahue's in there trying to separate the players. This is a proper old argy-bargy outside the tunnel. It There's is. players on the ground and it's uh, this is ugly. I think what happened was Armagh were not happy with some of the, the Galway play acting, I'll say. They were trying to waste a bit of time. They were going down with injuries. It left a bit of a sour taste. So as soon as that ball was slapped over by Reen O'Neill, which was an unbelievable score, by the way, all the Armagh players were kind of pushing the, their Galway opponents and pointing oh, at them, kind of saying, that's oh, what you get. James, this is getting very ugly. Comer there, Comer there, he's been gouged, I would say. Oh he has God. been gouged. And I don't yeah. know who did it, but there was a hand in his face that properly went for both his eyes. And that has Jeez. kicked off further okay. around now. That Whoever the alleged offender was... He was. Several Galway players then went after him. Haven't seen what happened. Kieran Donny was over trying to separate it. There will be repercussions from 100%. these few moments of madness. It's still going on, isn't it? There as they're it going is, in the tunnel. They've just gone in. I think you're a bit behind us. Yeah. But they've gone in. So both teams are on separate sides of that entrance. So I, I'd imagine the both sides are going to be separated inside. But it was very ugly there. I'd be surprised if 15 on 15 came out in the second half. Because there was. There were two players on the ground tussling maybe five minutes before full time for quite a protracted period as well. The linesman was yes. just standing over them waiting for them to finish. That was Shane Walsh and James Morgan. That was going on for a while. I think Shane Walsh was playing kind of left half forward and James Morgan was stopping his runs. Eventually he was booked and I think the Shane Walsh might have tried to go at him again just to see could he get him could he get him into a bit of trouble I think there was kind of things like that going on for the whole second half. It just turned a bit cynical. I think that's why Armagh were upset. Now they did react badly there though but there is going to be an edge to this game when the when the extra time starts wow there sure will I mean what does a referee do in that instance I wonder do they go down and review footage or do they hand out red cards or yellow cards it remains to be seen we have extra time here as well I mean that's the yeah. other aspect I think it's whatever they can see between the umpires the linesmen and the referee see if they could see anything often in these situations so much is going on how would you pinpoint one or two incidents you could send off two of one team and there could be something behind your back. There could be four red card offences behind your back for the other team. So it's very hard to get a fair result out of this. But, I mean, you'd have to say that Armagh probably did start that. Well, it certainly looked at it from here. It is over on the Cusack side. We're in the Hogan here, so it's hard to see exactly. Yeah. But 
Oh, it's going to be a difficult one for the referee to see what he does here. I'd be shocked if there was 15 on 15 coming out. So your sense is Armagh frustration levels grew as Galway tried to, as most teams would, I suppose, slow the game down, see out the clock. I think so. I think so. And let's face it, Armagh were absolutely dead and buried. Until that second goal went in, they were in serious trouble. So for them to, to actually get a result was incredible. So their tails are up, their gander is up. They got, probably got an unbelievable burst of emotion there at the end and they said, you know, they're going to take it out in their direct opponent, but then it just spilled over. I tell you what, the CCCC is gearing up for the week of its life. <laughs> I tell you that for nothing, whatever the fallout They'll is. They'll all be is. rescinded anyway. <laughs> They'll all be rescinded, yeah, I wonder. So just again, sum up, because we're going to go back to the papers here in a moment and you can draw breath. Just sum up, from Galway, four, five, six points up, I think it was at one stage, or you can give us the, the, the most they were ahead by, and then there were eight minutes of added time. Yes. What the hell happened, I suppose, is the question here. Galway went up six points. Six points, And they were absolutely in control. Shane Walsh had the ball on his toe. He was kind of drawing fellas in, slipping it over the top, and they got a couple of points um, through Conroy and through Kieran Malloy. At that stage, the game was over nearly. But Rafferty came out. He's put in an outside of the left from halfway into the into the, the penalty box really and Reen O'Neill has jumped and he has caught an absolute butte over Sean Kelly he could have marked it he didn't he came down and he's fisted the ball across the square hoping that someone will palm it in there was legs being thrown at it there was hands being thrown at it and in the end Connor Torbett somehow manages to kick it along the ground In it got a deflection and went into the roof of the net but then it was game on There's only three points in it so I mean that was the real turning point but you've no idea how impressive that point from Reno O'Neill was to draw it they were a point down they got fouled over by the Cusack stand everyone was kind of the, the stadium was kind of humming is he going short what's left he didn't take any notice of anything he got his mark put it down on the ground and slapped it over it had yards to spare it was an absolute worldly of a score so they deserved the draw in the end but you'd have to say Armad did not come out in that second half and play well at all they were mm. absolutely haunted to get the result there Extra time. What time is your train home? <laughs> okay. 7.05. 7.05. Best of luck with that. <laughs> uh, Once the Kerry game goes ahead on time, we're okay. I think everything's pushed back now because they have to give them time to warm up. So it remains to be seen. Or cool down as the case may be. Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't bring those two teams out too quickly. You'd say, take an mm. extra five in the dressing room. Uh, we're reviewing the Sunday yeah. papers today. That gouge will be big talking point tomorrow I don't, I'm don't. i not even sure was it a player I don't know who it was but a hand went in on Comer's face didn't it for sure I missed it I know I saw oh, Arsene Wenger <laughs> over there but I did see I saw um, one of the Galway players indicating that somebody had been gouged with his fingers he was actually pointing to his well, hand I, so I don't know it was, it was Comer all I can say. we'll was, see it in slow motion later yeah it was Comer and just don't wrap this up and get over to Crow Park now sorry it was, <laughs> it was Comer and a hand came in on his face absolutely and, and you could see the reaction then of everybody so um, it's <laughs> as bad as I've it, seen in, this, in a long time some, some bad stuff and it's going to take what was uh, what obviously was unbelievable exciting finish to it like it'll just be the main yes. source of discussion now yes are you going to Crow Park do you well, have to I just might get there now <laughs> <I'm kidding>. um, <laughs> so sorry we're in the midst of it's a kind of a difficult space to have this conversation yeah, yeah. married to that making me feel but, very redundant here as a sports writer <laughs> far w- from the action we, we, <laughs> talking about people it listen to story this, of our lives people listen to this on podcast anyway I know I so know. So we are trying, uh, the problem we're trying to balance um, inclusivity with fairness is everybody's going to have a different perspective on that, not least the female athletes, uh, those of us looking on. And the other point Ross Tucker made is in certain sports, and it's not discussed in Eamon Sweeney's piece at all, is the element of safety. 
So yeah. Ross Tucker was making the point that at the moment, at the moment, you could have a 20 stone male rugby player transition and very, very quickly be participating in the female rugby game. And that poses, in his opinion, significant risk. Equally in boxing, you could have, in theory, and extreme examples often make for bad case law. And, and actually bad extremes have been used this here. Is in this is what's happening exactly yeah. here, is but, that it's the extremes. But in theory, you could have Tyson Fury transition and very quickly be fighting uh, females in the heavyweight division and again does that pose a significant uh, safety risk then then you have all the complications of you know whatever medicine you take to do to to transition how does that affect you physiologically and this is where all the arguments come in Uh, one of the interesting things he says is for one thing I'm quoting um, Sweeney he said for one thing the scientific evidence on trans women's athletic performance is not conclusive and that's one of the complications and then for another he says the loudest opponents of trans women in women's sport have an unfortunate tendency towards hyperbole and that's probably there's an element of truth in that as well yes, I think absolutely. you know and and he quotes Megan Rapino the the American um uh, soccer player who's gay and is is always um obviously advocating for LGBT rights and but she was saying the notion that trans children are being told that they're gross and they're different and evil and sinful and they can't play sports with their friends that they grew up with yeah that's where you have to uh, she's just and he has the stat that only 13 percent of trans students in america participate in sport so he's saying decisions like the one fina took might be defendable as uh, defended as unavoidable from the point of view of fairness yeah. but from the point of view of inclusion they're a tragedy and you know and it's that's funny the, I, that's I, the nub yeah. of it i was talking to someone who was at a uh, soccer coaching um, yeah kind of festival i suppose and there were maybe a couple of hundred kids there and as the competition increased parents started getting more and more involved and all that kind of thing and and somebody stood up effectively and said of the like 100 kids here none of these kids are playing the Premier League can everyone just relax Relax. you know and so if you apply that for instance to a trans teenager or somebody in their 20s who just wants to be part of society and let's be honest none of us here are playing in the Premier League Mm -hmm. and if it's going to be deemed absolutely safe and in good spirit like that's where the inclusivity argument mm. takes yeah, because a massive a, importance as opposed to Olympic you, you Games. Think because your your kids probably have trans friends or classmates and don't know any don't have any problem about that. Yeah, they know better. It's a good line in it. Um, I I'm, we just we discussed this. I I've talked about this for a couple of years and I find it very very difficult area to. I can't just I just find it difficult to make my mind up on it. But what I do know is that it is something that has become such an issue because gender is so. It's such a movable thing now, you know, trans- transitioning. There are, more, there are more people transitioning their gender um, and uh, and that gender fluidity is so much m- increased in the next generations. So it's not going away. It just won't go away. And how sport deal with it is, is, is a very... I, it's just a huge debate for me, you know, because I, I I understand as a woman that women's sport have separate have separate categories yeah. so that it's fair to women when they're competing. And certain sports <coughs> are running away from this for as long as they can. Mm. Whereas swimming feel, I suspect, on the back of well, that was Leah Thomas. Yeah, that, that was such a high pro- profile case. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah. But other sports are saying like, I would think privately what they're saying is, let's just down. stay away from this for as long as we can stay away from this. Well, our, as I said to you, our, 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 uh, anecdotally, as I've been told, certainly in one sport in Ireland, they they've done it under the radar because it was at, at a community level, at a local level, and they thought, well, everybody here is happy that 
that this athlete plays mm-hmm. here and it's not a problem for anybody involved. We don't have to go making laws here. Yeah. It's like they're to- we're talking about that at, at children's level, you see. I, supp- I suppose one of the things that strikes me, and I, I'm a bit like you, I read everything I can. I don't understand the science. Yeah. I just, I mean, if someone dumbs it down to me and really gives it to me in a basic form, I can understand the science, but I don't understand nanomoles and testosterone in any real way. Um, my sense is looking at it is, and this is the problem, is that like, there isn't a one size fits all solution to this. I mean, the boxing example that Ross Tucker gave me versus archery. Yeah. They're two sports that it would strike me might just have to have very different solutions. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I think that the whole like bottom line of this, if there is a bottom line, is that it is complicated. Complicated, and yeah. yeah. And, and, and ironically, given how complicated and nuanced and, and, and as you say, there's so many different angles you can come at it, you know, like the one you've just mentioned is that if you are someone who has a clearly defined certain view of this I just I just don't know how you can Mm. if you're unless uh, unless you're you know completely deficient in you know in a sense of of tolerance and an understanding for people on one side or a sense of understanding of the nuances within sport and the other that that do have to be weighed up as well like it's like it, like there is no other way of. I mean, it's a very good piece. Um, even Sweeney kind of weighs down on the side that includes, uh, you know, inclusion is just about more important. I think if I'm not, um, <coughs> you know, he says decisions like the one Fina took <coughs> might be defended as unavoidable from the point of view of fairness, but from the point of view of inclusion, they're a tragedy. So that you know, at some a certain point, you know, it's his view that like we have to that that human rights do trump uh, fairness within. Uh, within sport, but you know anybody who who comes down and says you know has has a, has a cold black or white view in this, like it just doesn't, you know it it, it doesn't bear that doesn't and bear scrutiny. And we, and we haven't even looked facts. at like the fact that most sports science is based on men's bodies, that women physiologically are different than men. They suffer far more severely with concussions. They suffer far more severely with ACLs because of hip positionings. Because there's massive physiological things that women have to overcome in sport. Yeah. So when somebody transitions and becomes a female athlete, their their power levels and other things may be changed, but also they haven't had to go through those sort of things to get to where they are. They didn't have periods for years. They didn't go through all of that. Like, it's just, it, it's just so complicated. I find it very difficult. To, no, to it is very difficult. Mind. And I... I, I, but I think what, what has to happen is that people have to be allowed to, to hear each other's I opinions. I was just going to say that the most disappointing mm. aspect is how toxic it's become so quickly. Yeah, so people mm. now tread carefully and don't know what to say it because it's just so ugly. But they, as you said, it's the people outside protesting with such certainty. Either way, that would confuse you the most in some respects. And I'm conscious, even just as we're speaking, yes. their football boots behind you with rainbow laces, you know, uh, and for so long, people had, to, you know, LGBT people had to had to suffer so much in sport you know and now they don't have to I hope and Mm. I think it's getting better for men as well Mm. you know you just would hope that this can be dealt with as as as, as sanely as possible and as kindly as possible whatever happens Eamon Sweeney there back page of the Sunday Independent and then Ian Herbert's piece is more on what happened at that FINA vote Mm. while we were talking there so uh, we'll, we'll go back to James O'Donoghue in just a moment but the well, the two teams seem to be on the pitch. Borg Joyce is in a fairly extended conversation with the referee. Tommy, I know while we were uh, talking there, you did see the alleged mm. gouge. I mean, I don't know if alleged needs to be used, to be honest. What was your read of the what happened there? Yeah, it looked like uh, either a member of the um, Armagh backroom staff or a, a, a non um, non player, player yeah. uh, involved. It was, it was pretty blatant. I, I mean, I, I'm not going to second guess the workings of the CCCC, given... Uh, 
given what's happened in recent months. Uh, I don't know, I guess I can imagine that you're talking about this being in the papers in the week to come. I'd imagine one of the one of the angles that somebody might take is that if you un- keep undermining the dis- disciplinary process and if it keeps failing to to address these issues, yeah. then think there's, there's, there's no barrier for things that, uh, like this to happen again. Um, not that you're ever going to stamp out, I guess, Rouse and Ramies yeah. uh, at, at full-time in GA matches, but I mean that, that's, that was pretty shocking. Pretty shocking. It, it was. James O'Donoghue, you're still in Crow Park, I presume? <laughs> yes, still yeah. here at Galway Road on the field. Joyce has just had a good interaction with the referee. I think he was trying to tell him exactly what happened. Um, the referee wasn't listening too much to it, to be fair. Galway just no huddle now with Joyce giving him a team talk. No sign of Armagh yet. Certainly the body language of Joyce and Galway was one of aggrievement. We've been wronged here and you need to do something about referee. That's, that, that was my sense of that conversation without hearing the actual words. It is, but that's dangerous for Galway. Galway need to now concentrate on winning this match. If they, if they have this as an excuse to... to to kind of roll over at this stage they, Armagh will come out firing here mm. Galway have to put this into their back of their mind whatever did happen over there as I said it's very far away from us under the Cusack we're the Hogan whatever did happen over there they have to park it until after the game yeah. the ref is going to do what he has to do Galway need to clear that from their heads and go and play this extra time and now win the game again and you don't have a TV screen in front of you you haven't seen the incident no they okay. with, with all the, the screens and the replays they, they didn't show anything here come Armagh now. They're getting a good reception. Galway still in the huddle. They're not actually going into their positions just yet. I presume the referee is going to take action now. Oh, I see. So we may be about to see action. That remains to be seen, potentially. The Armagh chair, largely because there's more Armagh fans in the stadium than uh, most. So we'll see if there is any action. You're counting 15 Galway players. There's more than anyway. that at the moment because yeah. even the Galway management have stayed on the field at the minute. Okay. And the Armagh management, everyone is just expecting the referee here to make some hard calls. Like no one's lined up in their position. So I presume the referee is going to make his calls and then they're going to toss. Well, we'll stay with you because it's hard to predict what's going to happen here. So we're just getting the wide shot now. As you say, uh, no players in their positions and plenty of backroom staff still on the pitch and referee is talking to the Galway fullback and I'm not sure who else has been called in there for Armagh but the referee talking to Galway player and Armagh player at the moment yeah is that Nugent in the in the middle it is is it Nugent he's talking to number 13 yeah he joined captain for Armagh I think he's pulled in the captains two captains he sent yeah. them both off oh Okay, so Sean Kelly gone and Aidan Nugent gone so far. Yeah, we're just seeing straight red cards to both. Straight reds. No surprises. The the crowd didn't even even have a reaction to that because it's like, okay, that's a start. Uh, Because the the Galway fullback, remind me of his name again, sorry? That's Sean Kelly. Sean Kelly. Captain for Galway. I think Sean Kelly knew he was being sent off because Sean Kelly was... After Joyce finished talking to the referee, Sean, he, went, he went back and there was a huddle and Joyce and Sean Kelly were in conversation and Sean Kelly was just repeatedly shaking his head in disgust. Yeah. So I think Sean Kelly knew he was being sent off. I, <laughs> I mean, I didn't see his uh, part in what happened. I presume, I presume this isn't the... Like, both captains are kind of off here or captain and vice-captains off here. They've obviously seen something yeah. that both well, have done. 
if he's doing one each, fair enough. But I mean, there was backroom staff, there was subs involved. Like realistically, after the game, there's going to be a few bends. But as I said, the Galway players don't want to see Walt or Joyce shaking his head and saying we're being we're being wronged. He mm. needs to just shake this off and say, lads, whatever happens, happens. Let's go and win this second half. Same with Armagh. That that can linger. That can linger in your mind. If you if you think that something's gone on that shouldn't have happened, you need to just brush it off. This is so important for these teams to just get that out of their head and mentally switch back on. We're seeing McGinney going around talking to players and little G ups and the referee there even chatting and they're working on some paperwork. He was all smiles. He was reasonably relaxed given the gravity of the situation. Poor Joyce and Keen O'Neill are arms crossed on the touchline waiting for the game to start we're seeing Reen O'Neill there is near the referee he's not in danger of being he sent off well. Or, well, he's joint captain as well and he's in there oh yeah that was just a toss so that's fine no, no, no further action from the referee so one each probably the only fair thing you can do in that situation that's a real that, that's a real Mayo Mead 96 one from each <laughs> kind of a solution isn't it yeah it is but it means at least we still have a game yeah you know whatever action has to be taken after the game has to be taken but this is there for both sides now to go and win at and least we still have that game James for people who missed it that's Armad down to 13 now isn't it it is McCabe was already sent off for that collision in the second half it was probably harsh to be fair it was a shoulder to shoulder no it was at full speed the whole ground shuddered when he when he hit uh, Tierney with a belt of his shoulder. But what happened was I think his head clashed then with Tierney and drew blood. And when the ref saw the blood and Tierney had to go off, he gave McCabe the red. So, as you said, our man now down to 13. So it has to be advantage Galway. OK. Second half of extra... Or sorry, the first half of extra time, excuse me, is just starting. And it's going to be interesting to see what the mood is on the pitch there. I suspect it will be physical. Uh, James O'Donoghue, thanks for the time being. So we're underway in extra time. I don't remember... Uh, moment like that to you guys not for a long time that was extraordinary a I mean, uh, couple of league ones but not in a not in a, a major championship game we'll find out the logic of why he sent off those two players mm. I presume it's not give me a captain it's, each yeah. a leader each it's like that, that'd that be no way to do that. there was a huge amount of admin going on wasn't there wasn't there a lot of admin yeah very very odd so I guess I want everything to be above board when this gets submitted oh no, it's like a Garda here going yeah. what, what, what's the DPP going to say about my wrong procedure yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Very final thoughts. You're here much longer than you're meant to be, no. here, so I apologise <laughs> for that. Live sport show. Live sport. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you had picked out the fact, and uh, we can give it a brief mention, that the Irish cricketers will be pe- playing, even though it's a one-day international in Dublin against India. So, in front of a global audience, that is oh. absolutely staggering. The, yeah. the the money and the viewing figures in cricket. Just amazing, and and just like to just think of well, I, I suppose like there's a passionate uh, audience for it here, but we have absolutely no idea. Jared Siggins, who's obviously brilliant, and um, just has a piece in the Sunday Indo today, and uh, the money from the television, the Star India pay for the IPL is two point four billion dollars mm. over five years up to twenty two, and the next one is expected to be six to seven billion, just second only to the NFL. Yeah. And sometimes you just like, even mm. as a sports journalist you realise how little you understand and what? just about you know and also about the money in sport and, and, and power of television sport blew my mind about the IPL the average viewing figure for a game is 400 million on TV and another 260 million watching streams yeah. you've 660 million people watching games of cricket here mm, yeah yeah, unbelievable. Yeah. And Cricket Ireland will be delighted that every one of its 8,000 seats have been sold already. And live TV secured in 70 countries, especially in India, where 220 million watched the same fixture in 2018. So you've 220 million plus another 69 countries viewership. Yeah. 
I mean, quietly, the 8,000 people in the seats are watching the biggest global uh, yeah. superstars of the week. Well, it's hard to think of in Ireland a, a Irish sports people who'll be watched by more. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah, you know, incredible. This year or, you know. It's why our cricket stars are so such superstars in their sport and we don't, I think we're not conscious of it sometimes as well. Um, Completely. Yeah, and like it th- comes at a time for a lot of change, I think, within the Irish system as well. I suppose he's that, pointing out. That will do well to make, what, page mm. six of a sports yeah. page when it's yeah. on and on an off-the-ball news round it'll be eighth story down yeah. and actually in global terms it's destroying the field. Yeah, yeah it's that's incredible. It is incredible. Yeah. Uh, so that's Ger Siggins there on page 19 of the Sunday Independent. Any final one you want to point anyone towards? Just a tiny little thing that I noticed and really was, we were talking about publicity and talking about the GNF but I do notice there's a little nib what we call in the business a nib news and brief in the m- 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 I think it's Mail on Sunday Uh Tennis are about to get a Netflix special. They're filming with them apparently at the moment. Oh, are they? Yes, it's going to be the next one. Can they do for tennis what they did for Formula One and well, for isn't, basketball? Isn't golf doing one? Or there has been it? some talk about golf doing oh, they're, one They're as filming well. this season. Right. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> what a good season. And apparently they've got <laughs> unbelievable access. Uh, so apparently they've been lucky as well in that I think they were following Justin Thomas the week he won the PGA. Like they were spending the week right. with him in effect. Right. And... It's made, the word is it's going to be really, really great. Yeah, really? I think individual sports lend themselves to these things because there's no sanctity of the dressing room. Like the Formula One yeah. lads are like, yeah. I hate my teammate. Yeah, yeah. I can't tell you how much I hate him. Yeah. And equally, <laughs> the golf lads are all selfish. Tennis and also, is, tennis, tennis has some perfect. big personalities yeah. as well oh, at yeah. the moment. So yeah, it's made for it. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. that's the next and one. Tennis is up. definitely one that needs. Like that needs that for the next generation yes. well, big time because it's got a, it's got to turn over players now who are yeah. going to be the next big ones so yeah. they need to create a new personalities and and do you think the average sports fan could name five male tennis players outside of the big no. four I wouldn't I be couldn't. I wouldn't be confident <laughs> <either>. <laughs> Never <laughs> the and the, the lady the female uh, side needs some big stars to come through yeah. like because yeah. they they give on these one-off w- winners like Raducanu yeah, you think well that's yeah. the star and then yeah, yeah. disappears just as quickly yeah, post arena yeah, yeah. so yeah. you can see why it's so attractive to some sports because they've seen this particularly I think Formula One and I know from mm. talking to people um, particularly the female viewership that they've attracted to Formula One has been phenomenal it comes back, back to our GA point human yeah. drama human yeah. drama human yeah, drama personalities like yeah. This Armagh Galway game. If anyone's talking to me about the Galway full forward line at full time, <laughs> <laughs> not how did Galway win this game? We don't not care. Kick out <laughs> uh, yeah. go- there is going to be some fallout from this. Mm. Goodness yeah. me, just seen the replay there. Um, gouge looked bad in real time and it looked worse again in replay. So, And how the referee has picked out just two players, unless they were the two that started their kerfuffle and maybe That's they the were logic. the two uh, yeah we were just saying yeah. I mean the difficulty of being two things here well three three things here being a referee mm. being a co- mm. trying to get your team back down here and the work of a so- sports psych who does so much with teams before matches but imagine being mm. having that, that scenario and you have to get them back Resets, down there and bring reset, everybody yeah. reset and back down and, and go back out and play football mm. uh, I have seen people echoing the 1996 Mio Mies yeah. <laughs> situation <laughs> right. where it's Brett Cardiach alright let's get on with it looks yeah. a bit like that doesn't yeah. it it does, but I don't know how you how do you litigate a situation like that in the heat of heat of the moment. Uh, but you have to be seen to do something. Yeah, you know. And <laughs> I mean, he probably wasn't wrong to do what he what he did. Didn't see, didn't see the incident, but I mean, he presumably saw enough. And and look, leave it leave it to the authorities to 
to get to the bottom of it. In, well, there won't be, there isn't a pitch in Ireland that has more TV cameras on it anyway mm. than that one. You know what I mean? That's one of the problems sometimes with these instances that you get a very, you know, you get a very nuanced view of it from a particular television angle, but there has to be multiple angles there, surely. Well, I just hope there was a tunnel cam as well because I don't, I don't suspect they all got inside and said, right, we'll leave it at that <laughs> um, somehow. Well, they're 21 points apiece now. We are uh, done. Sorry, this was a long paper review. Uh, you're both out overtime. Clean a Foley, Tommy Martin. One of those epic podcasts here. <laughs> I know. Thank you so Our much. Pleasure. We'll take Thanks. a break.